Have you ever felt stuck, trapped, not where you want to be or expected you to be at this time in life? The last few years for many have been times of lockdowns, isolation, disruptions of all sorts. Current challenges aside, at any time of life, we can become trapped emotionally, physically, or spiritually. The book of Exodus and the life of Moses can encourage, inspire, and give us freedom and hope, as we'll see in our lesson today. I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. And let's now get into our lesson entitled, Exodus, A New Beginning for Moses, Israel, and us. Now here's where we are in the Bible. At the end of Genesis, Jacob, who's now called Israel, took his family to Egypt to escape the famine in Canaan. God prepared the way by sending Joseph ahead, though he used the means of his brothers selling him into slavery to get him there. But as God so often does, God took an impossible situation when he took Joseph out of prison and made him a ruler in Egypt. And, though jo and through Joseph, God gave Jacob's family a safe, protected, and privileged place in Egypt where for the next 400 years, they could grow into a nation. But then things changed. As the book of Exodus begins, in the Bible, a new pharaoh no longer protects the Jews, but forces them into slavery. For us also, our experience reading or listening to the Bible changes with the book of Exodus. Up to this point, it's been somewhat easy reading or listening to the true stories of creation, about Job and Abraham, the flood, the start of the family of Jacob that becomes the nation of Israel. But about halfway into the book of Exodus, after the incredible story of the Exodus, things are going to change in your reading. And you'll start reading complex laws and rules about building the tabernacle. Now, I'm going to give you an overview of what happens in the rest of the book in a little bit. But if you are reading through the Bible in chronological order, unfortunately, the schedule of these teachings won't always line up. You may not have covered all the content that I'm going to be talking about in this lesson. And this is going to be a challenge as we go through the books. To help do that, to help you while we're doing that, I plan on doing a better job of summarizing the content that you'll read before covering the big ideas that we talk about in each lesson. This is also why I want to emphasize the importance of using the book with the word, the chapter-by-chapter -chapter Bible handbook by Warren Wearsby that I strongly recommend that you read along with these lessons because it will help you understand the verse-by-verse lessons in the Bible, and I will be giving you the big overall picture of it. Let me explain this a little more. But before I do, another highly recommended uh, resource for you, just for content overviews, is the www the Bible Project. It's a source of videos that uh, through sort of cartoon illustrations, and I mean that in a very serious and wonderful way, will give you a great overview of the Bible. Again, these are videos by the Bible Project. These two resources will give you the basic content, but I want to give you more than that. That's why I'm doing, we're doing with Bible 805, what I call a multi-level, multimedia approach to teaching you the Bible. On level one, you need a basic understanding of the content of the Bible. 
If you grew up going to church, this reading through the Bible in chronological order, the schedule that I have for you, it's a good review. If you didn't, it's really essential foundational information. For everyone, since most haven't done this, reading through the Bible in chronological order will help you understand God's authorship of it and his messages in a deeper, more meaningful way. Then there's level two. You need basic commentary to orient you in your step-by-step reading through the Bible. That is why that book, again, with the word, the chapter-by-chapter Bible handbook, will help you. But we don't stop there. Because if you just do those two things, what I'm doing is just kind of one more YouTube level, this is what's in the Bible course. Now, there's nothing wrong with those. You need that. But I want to go on from there. Then there's level three, the historical, archaeological, and other content beyond the basics that will really enrich your understanding of the subject matter. For example, in our lesson on Exodus, I have an additional video on the faces of the pharaohs that I encourage you to look at. At this level also, I place my teachings on how the current lesson ties in with themes throughout the Bible, and I will go back and forth referring to different things that will enrich your understanding of the passage that we're looking at. Then, of course, there's level four, where you have the opportunity to interact with the content and make personal applications through the questions provided and, I hope, discussion times that you have with other people. With all that in mind, do check out this additional lesson on the faces of the pharaohs. I find I think you'll find it fascinating being able to actually look at the faces of the pharaohs that lived during the times that we'll be talking about. But let's get back to our overview. It's been 400 years since the sons of Jacob arrived in Egypt. Keep in mind, the United States has only been a country for 247 years, so they were there for a long time. We'll go into more detail in a few minutes, but as a quick overview, Exodus opens 400 years after the ending of Genesis, and in a very brief summary, then tells us the story of how God used Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, how God saves them from Pharaoh's armies, and finally leads them to Sinai, where they enter into a covenant, an agreement with God, to be his people, his representatives to the world. But as we learn, they almost immediately rebel. Moses pleads for mercy, they're forgiven, and God gives them instructions on how to build a tabernacle where he will once again dwell with his people as he did in Eden. But access to God is not as simple as it was then, and we get into lists of rules and regulations, building of the tabernacle, feasts, laws, all sorts of ancient history in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These books can be a challenge to read, and that's where many people bail out. But don't stop. Here's why it's really important to keep reading. In what follows, the laws and regulations aren't just for people in the past, but as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10, where he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Oh, that's not good, we would say. But Paul goes on telling us why this happened and then why it's important to us that we read it. 
Here are the reasons that they died, and here's what it teaches us. He says, now these things occurred as examples to us to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples, and were written down for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. These books are a warning for all of us, especially if we think we don't need it. The warning works in these ways. Now, here's some of the things that these books are going to teach us. First, they underscore that God has always had a people, and not everyone on earth is automatically his child, his people. To be his people, the Israelites had to believe Moses and move out of Egypt. Today, we must accept Jesus as our Savior. Doing these things makes us individually his child and part of his people. Second, they tell us that God is the author of our salvation. For Israel, it was salvation from slavery in Egypt. For us, it is salvation from the penalty of our sins because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. They did not do it in their own power, and we are totally dependent on the mercy and grace of God for our salvation. Third, after salvation, we belong to God, and he has expectations for us as his children and representatives. There are serious consequences to our choices, and these books tell us we make life-giving choices and the cost of choices when we don't obey or trust God. Now, other verses remind us, for example, in Psalm 103, know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. Romans 4, 8, 14, 8 says, For if we live, we live to the Lord, or if we die, we die to the Lord. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. But, this doesn't come naturally. Even after we're saved, even though they were saved from Egypt, following God in this wholehearted way does not come naturally. And because of that, we need to learn how to live. We can't just do what we want. Was, was acceptable in Egypt is not acceptable to God. And God's very specific about his requirements. That's why every part of life is covered in these books. And though the specifics don't apply to us today, the overall deal that God is, the overall idea that God is interested and has expectations for all of life, that still applies. The rest of the Old Testament will make sense in cycles of blessing and judgment for Israel and individuals when you understand the ground rules presented in these books. The material you will be reading is complex. 
and quite honestly, sometimes very challenging to get through. So that's why I included Psalms and Proverbs along with the reading, sort of, uh, to give you a little bit of encouragement and something a little bit easier to understand each day. But I'll also be sharing overviews, insights, commentary, and applications for you each week. So with all of that preliminary information said, let's jump into more detail about what happened in Exodus and some applications for us from it. As a story so often is, it starts with the story of one man, Moses. Exodus opens 430 after 430 years of silence since Joseph's death. It begins with the story of Moses, born an Israelite but raised by Pharaoh's daughter, most likely Hapsetsud, an extremely powerful woman. Somehow, when we meet him as an adult, he knew his calling was to be the deliverer. Unfortunately, like Joseph, who bragged to his brothers about God's calling on his life and got sold as a slave for it, Moses decides to do things his way and kills an Egyptian who's abusing his fellow Israelite. And that did not go well. <laughs> Moses was labeled as a murderer, and he had to flee. He spent 40 years in Midian. When we next see him, he's now an old man. 80 years old, maybe one filled with regret, maybe complacent. He may have thought his days were winding down, but one day a bush was burning, and when he turned to look at it, he heard a voice. As Exodus 3, 7 through 10 tells us, the voice he heard said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God, and the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of the slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now... I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses was hesitant when God told him he was to deliver his people. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. A key in any calling from God is it's not about you. It's about the God who calls you. God goes on to tell Moses a new name for himself. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now some comments and applications. God can call you at any time in your life, from any place, no matter how isolated or shut in you might be. God is incredibly creative in his callings. He called Abraham out of an advanced civilization into the desert and relative isolation for the rest of his life. God called Moses out of the wilderness back to an advanced civilization from isolation to lead over a million people. What God calls you to, he has prepared you for. Moses was educated, literate, well acquainted with Pharaoh's court, and he also knew what a nomadic life was like. Age does not matter in God's call, young or old, because we are an eternal people. After much complaining, questions, hesitations, Moses submits, and though he didn't know it, he goes on to do and write materials that will change the course of human history. What first comes to mind when we think of what Moses accomplished is the deliverance of the people, but equally important, 
was the writing of Job and the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These books are the foundation for human life and law, for our understanding of God, the rest of his message to us, and ourselves. Imagine if they'd never been written. And when we even try, we can't, because they are a core of human history. These books form, even if we aren't as familiar with them as we should be, all of who we are. Think of the time that Moses spent, will spend listening to God to write it all down, all during, at the same time, serving as a leader of a complaining, ungrateful multitude of people. He had no idea of what that call initially involved. Now back to the story. God does not forget his people or his promises. He's at work even if we don't see it. After his preparation and call, God sends Moses to Egypt. He confronts Pharaoh, who refuses to let the people go. The plagues against the gods and pride of Pharaoh last actually for 10 months. We tend to read it rather quickly and think it passed in just a few days, but it was actually 10 months of time. The final one is the death of the firstborn of Egypt, while those under the Passover blood on their doorways are safe. The people leave Egypt at last. Now, they face some early challenges after, they're being, after being free. Pharaoh changes his mind and goes after them. The Israelites are hemmed in by the Red Sea. For 10 months, though, they've seen incredible miracles of judgment against Egypt. They're going free with riches given to them by the Egyptians after 400 years of slavery. They have ample reason to trust God. Instead, they immediately start to complain and cry. But God opens the sea, and they go through. After this, you think, with all the previous miracles, they would trust God when the trials come. But that doesn't happen. Three days into the desert, and they can't find water. Do they rejoice and say, wow, what an opportunity to trust God? No, they grumble, they complain, they whine, but God gives them water. They grumble about the food. God gives them manna, which means, what is it? What is it? <laughs> That's what manna actually means. Now, God gave them the manna was also, God giving them the manna was also part of a test. On the sixth day, they were get to gather double the amount of manna and on the seventh day to rest. No work was given, even to gather food. God said he would use this to test them. Well, some obeyed, of course, and some didn't. But God was teaching them that the Sabbath was a gift along with the food. In their years as slaves, I imagine they had few days off and no free food. A historical note here. The Egyptian week was 10 days long, and though there were periodic religious festivals, there's no record of a weekly day of rest, which would have been difficult in a primarily agrarian society, so probably they had little to no time off. Now, the food, they, they get the food they did not work for. It was freely provided, and they were given a day of rest every seven days. Now, a few comments and application regarding the Sabbath. Are we still living like slaves and not taking the rest we could and should take in Jesus? Here's not the place to argue about the details of the Sabbath, Saturday versus Sunday, exactly what constitutes rest, etc. But because the Bible isn't specific and consistent on the details, Jesus, the, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He broke it to do good to care for others. He infuriated the religious leaders about it. 
because he wouldn't follow their Sabbath rules. The Jews didn't rest for 52 days when they were rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, and God commanded them for their work. I think the main point is, do we trust God, or do we think that our success in everything, in our work or in our spiritual lives, depends totally on us and how hard we work? Think and pray about it, and ask God to help you answer how He wants you to rest. Then came a big battle, an attack from the Amalekites. They were the constant enemies of Israel, and in Deuteronomy, it tells us a little bit more about this situation where it says, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out. They met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. Moses told Joshua to gather an army to fight them. Joshua leads the troops into battle, and Moses is on the top of the mountain praying for them. So long as Moses' arms are held up in prayer, they win. When he tires, they lose. Then Aaron and Hur hold up his arms until the army is defeated. Some lessons from this story. A primary really good lesson in application it was given to us by Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, who talks about the importance of both prayer and action. He reminds us that Moses is on the mountain praying, and we tend to emphasize that. We tend to emphasize the importance of prayer, and prayer is incredibly important. But, he reminds us, at the same time, Joshua was in the valley fighting bloody hand-to-hand combat. Both actions are important, and both are needed. I've often used this illustration in my church communications ministry, but in all ministries, There is always this combination. Yes, we must always pray, but usually there is much work to be done. And often it's detailed, boring, brutal work. No matter what he calls you to do, much of it probably won't be fun to do. Sometimes the greatest things we can do for God are not fun, but involve faithfulness in the little things. Showing up, caring consistently, picking up after yourself, being kind when you're tired or cranky, and continuing to read through your Bible, even though some parts of it might be confusing, unpleasant, or frustrating the first time through. The important second lesson here is they learn how to fight and win. They were slaves newly out of Egypt, yet they fought a formidable foe and defeated them. Battles should teach us something. They aren't simply a trial to get through and be done with. They should have remembered this as they were about to go into the land and were fearful of the battles ahead. Consider journaling how God has helped you in the past to enable to trust him in future trials. But they finally arrive at Sinai. When they left Egypt, they were simply a group of slaves. God will now work to make them into a people, a nation to serve him. To do that, they need to learn everything, how to worship, how to govern their nation, how to live in their interpersonal lives. Next, he will give them the Ten Commandments and other laws, which is his right as the I Am God who brought them out of Egypt. God isn't just I Am for Israel in a story long ago. I subtitled this lesson, A New Beginning for Moses, Israel, and Us. Because God is also the great I am for us. And even more so than in the Old Testament. Because Jesus finished the start of that statement when in the Gospel of John he tells us, 
I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the vine. Because he is all these things at all times in our lives, I am quite sure that God has a bush burning for you. There's something or something more he wants you to do so you can serve him more fully in the next chapter of your life. Take some time to think about it, pray about it. Our world has incredible needs. Many of the people around you still need Jesus. Whatever you do, your life, your family and community will be blessed when you answer God's call. Regardless of your age or situation, keep your eyes open for your burning bush. That's all for now. Check out the notes from this lesson, Bible reading schedules, related resources, and helpful links at www.bible805.com. In closing, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to end with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word, and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.